welcome to Top of Mind, the show where we talk to real estate industry insiders and experts about the biggest trends impacting the market today. Enjoy the show. Mike Simonson here. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the Top of Mind podcast. This is where I talk to the smartest leaders, thinkers, doers in the real estate and related economies. For, for a few years now, we've been sharing the latest market data, that latest Altos Research market data every week in our weekly video series. With the Top of Mind podcast, we're looking to add context to the discussion. More than just the data, go beyond the data and and learn about what's happening in the market from the, the leaders in the industry. Every week, Altos Research tracks every home for sale in the country. All the pricing, all the supply and demand, all the changes in that data, and we make it available to you before you see it in the traditional channels. People desperately need to know what's happening in the housing market right now. The, hard, it, the market was so crazy, so competitive, and now suddenly the landscape has changed dramatically. So if you need to communicate about this market to your clients, go to altosresearch.com for a free consultation in, and how you can use market data in your business. So without further ado though, Allow me to introduce my guest today, Charles McKinney. Charles is the founder CEO of Vontiv. Charles is a, a real estate and, and mortgage analytics pioneer. He started his work with Freddie Mac, where we actually met probably 12 years ago, 10 or 12 years ago. He led, Charles led an, analytics at real estate investor portal auction.com and is actually a, a pretty prolific real estate investor in, in his own right. Charles launched Vontiv. Vontiv is a new digital way to finance investment properties. So it's a white label solution that, that empowers businesses serving real estate investors to launch their own investment property mortgage business in like one to two weeks. So very cool. So I'm interested in learning about that technology and that process and actually the financing behind that, but also learning today about what we can see investors doing in this market, what technology changes mean for this cycle of boom and bust. Lots to talk about with Charles today. Charles, welcome. Thanks, Mike. It's nice to be here. All right. Well, let's let's get started. Telling me, tell me a little, tell us a little bit about Vontiv and how the the company came about. Sure. So we've known each other as you mentioned a long time. The idea for Vontiv was born about twelve years ago. The story really starts with how my co-founder of the company, Shreyas Vijay Kumar, and I met. So as, as you mentioned, I worked at Freddie Mac from two thousand six. For about six of those years, I was one of the leaders that sat over loss mitigation for the single family mortgage portfolio of Freddie Mac. So that's quite a um, quite a quite a tenure to be doing that job. It was it was quite a fun period of time. You know, we we were looking at a seventy billion dollar loan loss reserve. You know, unfortunately, we were. I think in 2010, we sent 140,000 REO properties through the, the home steps unit at Freddie Mac, which was like in our worst year ever prior to that, you know, we had never done more than like, I want to think about 15,000 homes, so massive increase. So we brought a company called Palantir Technologies into Freddie Mac to build a lot of the, the data analytics and technology infrastructure that we needed for loss mitigation. Trace led Palantir's deployment. So we met and, and we became friends. And one of the strategies that we rolled out early was data science or algorithmic, what we now call AI-based pricing of real estate that was going to short sale, foreclosure, or real estate owned. Properties being sold to resolve mortgage defaults uh, where Freddie Mac could guarantee the mortgage. And we sold about 450,000 homes to real estate investors while I set over the strategy. And that was when I first learned about the real estate investors that Vonov works with today. So what is Vonov? So we, we focus on investment property mortgages. The folks, the consumers that we work with are not homeowners, but they're going to be home builders, folks who purchase and fix up properties for resale, folks who you know, buy, fix and rent properties, or folks who just you know, own rentals. So you're small kind of DIY landlords, small real estate investors. Very, very big market. So over the last five years, real estate investors financed about $1.7 trillion of loans. 
And they did that with about 12,000 lenders. And for this ecosystem, there's really no capital markets infrastructure similar to what you have with conventional mortgage with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. There's really no mature technology ecosystem that lenders can tap to automate their business and manage their risk. So we're, what we've done is we've built what we like to describe as the first embedded mortgage platform. So what does that mean? So we've built technology, a loan application, underwriting, loan origination system, mortgage servicing, all on top of a very comprehensive data foundation. That allows us to digitize from start to finish originating mortgage. And the way we're going to market with our company is we don't want to be a Quicken Loans. We don't want to be a, a, a B2C brand that every real estate investor turns to when they want to get a loan. Instead, what we're doing is we're taking our technology and we're deploying it to brands that already work with real estate investors, brands they trust, and we're enabling these brands to bolt a mortgage company onto their business. The setup is about a day, and we get them into market in a couple of weeks, and they can create a whole, uh, an entirely new revenue stream for their company. So that's what we're up to. And I guess one thing that might just you know illustrate the example of who we work with. So you can think of these B2C, you know, well, we don't work with them today. You can think of Airbnb. In the future, they might want to bolt a mortgage company onto their business. They have, you know, hundreds of thousands of Airbnb property owners. You can think of a community bank that works with real estate investors, or you can think of prop tax that, you know, facilitate the acquisition of homes. Somebody like Rebuild Technologies who's a partner or PadSplit. There's a lot of brands that real estate investors trust, and we think that mortgage finance will start to converge back or rebundle into these technology platforms, and we're really facilitating that with our technology. All right. So there's a lot there. Let us let me dive in. So because the investor mortgage doesn't have the, the government-backed secondary stuff, prior to Vonev, it was a lot more scattered. Is that is that the right way to look at it? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Very fragmented, low liquidity. Yeah, and, and low liquidity. And then, so the way, so then the technology like makes sense. Like the technology is the integration point to to bring those as to standardize, to break some of that fragmentation down. Then what happens on the back end? Who's, who's capital is it? So it, it's, it, it's a variety of financial institutions. So okay. do you, you, we really look at, at, at capital as, as fungible as a commodity. Um, what we want to do is, is, is take the production of the mortgage and reduce it to code. And we want the best capital for the real estate investor to be able to integrate and fund the loans. So we actually function as a lender of records. So we're not just a broker or a matchmaker, but, but we commit capital. So when a real estate investor comes through one of our partners to get a bond of mortgage, we're saying, okay, we are the cap capital to, we are the capital, but oh. what we're doing is you can think of a traditional mortgage lender as they'll commit the capital and then they might hold the mortgage until it pays off. So they would hold the maturity or they might go through a, like a loan sale. If you're a conventional lender, you're selling mortgages to Fannie or Freddie. If you're an investment property lender, you might be selling to hedge funds or to banks or life insurance companies. We operate the same model, but we make it incredibly more efficient because we're digitizing everything. And so on the, on the capital side, we're integrating banks. So one of our bank partners is a top 13 global bank. We have hedge fund partners. We have asset management partners. We have you know, life insurance company sources of funds that we can integrate. And really, again, what we're doing is we're, we're removing friction. So when we think about putting the best capital in front of a real estate investor, what that primarily means is being able to tell the real estate investor when they come and say, hey, I need a loan for this investment. We're, when we're quoting them, we're quoting with a very high degree of certainty that if the information they give us proves out to be true, we will close that loan. And, and not only will we close it, but we'll close it much faster than traditional processes. So if you think about going to a bank and getting a mortgage and it's taking like four, six, or eight, or 10 weeks to close, we're going to close that mortgage in as quickly as four or five days. That's amazing. So those, there's, a, there's a, a generation of technology that are in real estate that is 
working to remove a lot of that, the friction of home buying. And you, know, you can think of like the whole point of open door is like, how do I do this with as little friction as possible to the consumer? That's a really exciting prospect to a consumer who's afraid of all the things that I got to go through. And if you want to give me a check and it, you know, I, I mean, I pay a, I pay for that, that convenience, but sometimes I want to pay for that convenience. So like, there's a lot of that innovation that seems to be happening out there. So on the investor side, so it's really on the, for, for the investors, where you're you're aiming to to reduce that friction correct yeah so that's that's cool so so excuse me one of the one of the things that happens when we reduce friction is that more players get into the game or more like we allow more players to get in we we allow different kinds of deals to happen and some of the times that means that we're creating new risks that we haven't seen before. So like, you know, subprime was like, these are getting, making it easier to get mortgages to people who didn't previously qualify. And so on the one hand, that is a real optimistic, good for humanity thing. On the other hand, it, it creates a whole bunch of new risks that were not like, there's a reason that friction existed before a market reason. How do you look at that with investors right now? So I'll, I'll answer the question in, in in two parts. So so first, let me talk about how through our technology we manage risk, and then I'll give you some commentary on the state of credit quality in the yeah. investment mortgage. Yeah. And I can I can give you some comparison of that. So like, you know, what we see in the consumer, the conventional mortgage side now is helpful. I can talk about it during the great financial crisis. So, so how we manage risk in our technology and our process is very straightforward. We have a general point of view about what will drive the likelihood of a loan defaulting, so probability of default. And if a loan does default, how much we will recover from you know, the sale of the property or some other work out of the mortgage to lost a given default. And it really rests on classic principles of, of good credit. So we always talk about in the industry, the five C's of credit. So we tailor that to real estate investors. So when, when we look at a sponsor, somebody who's investing in real estate, we want to understand that they have a track record of experience. Very importantly, we want to understand that they have liquidity. So that goes beyond the down payment and the ability to service the mortgage. But it, it also goes to things like, if you own a portfolio of rentals, you have working capital to service your debt, maintain the properties, market the properties during periods of vacancy. If you're a home builder, you have working capital to fund renovations until you can make a construction draw on your loan and be reimbursed. If you're selling a property, you have plenty of capital to hold it for a more ordinary expectation of days on market. A lot of people were conditioned over the last few years that, wow, it's routine for homes to sell in two weeks. Now, you know this well because you have the data. If you look back you know, 20, 30 years, normal market selling times are like 90 to 120 days, 30 to 150 days on market, plus the time that it takes after that to, to close the transaction. So yep. we, we put a lot of emphasis on, on liquidity, and we also put a lot of emphasis on credit character. So you know, not just looking at the FICO score, but we really go with our data science, with our algorithms, we go down into the details and we want to understand, do you make your payments on time? You know, like, like one signal we look at with our own loans is if somebody, we get an ACH on every, on every loan and if somebody cancels their ACH, that's a big signal of somebody is likely to miss a payment and potentially default. So we're really getting into the details of the data and understanding like, like what is somebody's pattern of, of making payments, utilizing debt? Does it show responsibility? So that's on the sponsor side. And then on the property side, the way we're looking at risk really depends on the type of investment. So if it's a rental property, we want to understand that the, or model out and determine that the cash flow from the rental I collect rent, I subtract out from that expenses, I get to a net operating income. Is that net operating income going to be 
more than sufficient to cover the debt service costs and leave uh, a cash on cash return or a net profit to the investor. Okay, so that's like on a rental property as an example. If we're looking at a, a non-traditional rental, you know, we're going to want to either understand that it works as a long-term rental, which might bring down loan proceeds, or alternatively, we can look at the business income and expenses of the sponsor, compute, you know, something very much like a debt-to-income ratio, and if, if they as a business can afford the loan, you know, we'll give them the loan and pay less attention to the rent on an individual property. But again, what we're really looking at is on the long term that we're looking at cash flows. Does, does the cash flow work out for, you know, for what they're doing? And then if we're looking at like building a home or if we're looking at purchasing and fixing up a property, we want to understand what the exit strategy is. So what is the work somebody's going to do on the property? Will that work create return on investment? Will the property be saleable at the value they expect to get? Will it be refinanceable if they're going to hold it as a rental? And what we found is that when we apply these principles to managing risk, we do it in a very quantitative fashion, it works well. So we've had, as a, as a lender, we've had no mortgage default. And you know we've, we've lent around a billion dollars since inception. And that includes during the period of COVID, we've originated a number of long-term or permanent loans for rental properties. And we didn't have missed payments, even though tenants were needing forbearance because they lost jobs and things like that. So the model seems to work. Now, will it continue to work? I, I think we're going to go into a recession over the next year, and we'll see how it, I, this will be another test of our model. I think it will be a stress test. We'll see, but we feel very optimistic. Okay. So, yeah, now, that's actually gets into a couple of things. So before we dive into the coming economic challenges, well, I have a couple of questions on 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 the technology wise. So some of the things like property cash flow or exit strategy or or the experience of the the investor, the the sponsor, those are the types of things that typically a a loan officer, a good underwriter, would have analyzed personally and made real decisions about personally in in the past. They seem to me that they would be hard to actually quantify, to automate, you know? Like, how do I know that Charles has experience? Like, oh, that was a good, that was a good project you just did. Let's do another one like that. How, how do you, how does the technology and the data capture that stuff? So, the, the data science is never perfect. Because the the I hear that is, yeah <laughs> well and and a lot of it has to do with integrating third party data some of which isn't clean I mean you're very familiar with public records data as an example yeah so when we when we verify experience we're going out to public records data so we're you know like I'm Mike Simonson I'm just going to make this up I own Altos Properties LLC we're going to the public records and we're saying okay let's look up Altos Properties LLC here are all of the, the properties that, that Mike owns. So that gives us a way to construct a schedule of real estate that you own. Certain facts, like if it's a rental portfolio, we can't get from third parties. We're ingesting a rent roll from you or a T12. You know, we, we might be, you know, ingesting leases from you. But it's it's that combination. And the the value of the technology, again, isn't to replace what the loan officer or the underwriter has traditionally done. Instead, what we're doing is making it more efficient for them, making the, the determination more authoritative, more confident, because we're layering in additional data. And third, we're building in a direction, and this is very much like how Palantir builds their technology, we're building in a direction where the software can augment the intelligence of the human and, and, and say, hey, like I'll give you an example. Okay, so we'll see investors who like home builders who might, like we, we have one, there's one home builder that we financed in the past who built in Portland and moved to Florida and wanted, wanted financing in Florida. Well, we're able to glean things about the Florida market that this, this home builder entered that got us very comfortable with the equivalence of that market with Portland, you know, okay. like, like looking at neighborhoods, looking at trends, looking at statistics. And, and that got us very comfortable that like this home builder could take the model they employed in Portland 
transpose it to Florida, and it was it made it a, a much easier scenario to get comfortable with in terms of saying, yeah, we'll, we'll continue to finance you in a new market. Got it. So what the what the, what the data is doing is it's really allowing the human to just just be more informed, mm-hmm. you know, develop better intuition, better insight, and ultimately make make like make more robust. And I suppose yeah. if I'm a community bank in Florida. I don't know anything about what this guy's been doing in Portland. And so yeah. now I do. Exactly. You can tap into us. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I get that. Okay, that's great. Let's let's switch gears a little bit. So you mentioned, you know, you expecting coming recession. Sure seems like like all the signals are there. I have a couple of questions about that. Like one is is like I'm interested in your view of investors in general in in over 2023 and like you know, what your gut says about like, are they going to pull back faster? Is that going to, is that going to exacerbate a downturn? Are they like, I'm interested in what your gut says about what investors are going to do. And I'm also interested in if you have signal in your data that already tells you something, maybe that the world doesn't know. Let's start with what your gut says. What do you think investors are going to do in 2023? So let me let me start by just relating what I'm about to say to to the 2008 housing crisis and, and what we've seen since then because it's important context. Okay, so when when home prices collapse in 2008 to 2010, a lot of real estate investors, Mike, as you know well, got got wiped out. They were part of that frenzied crowd buying and flipping homes. On the other side of that. Beginning in 09, uh, there were real estate investors who profited from home prices collapsing, but rents remaining stable and actually appreciating from 09 on. And these investors, many of them became wealthy. Some of them became public companies. They rolled up into, for example, invitation homes. Since then, the Fed's era of loose monetary policy has been incredibly favorable to real estate investors. So home flippers on the exit, they could count on home price appreciation. Supply was limited, but if you could get supply, it was, it was very easy to sell. We did see some headwinds in 2018 to 2019 when the Fed raised interest rates to 2.5%. Funds, federal funds right before COVID started. We were seeing then signs of the market cooling. So I think there's some signals that you can look at and the data from 2018, 2019, that'll give us some intuition about what's going to happen in 2023. In addition to that, you can look at what happened in the great financial crisis to get some sense of what's going to happen in 2023. Okay. Now, my view of 2023 starts with... Markets are cooling. We expect prices to decline nationally. Let's call it 10%, maybe 15%. I don't think prices are going to collapse like they did in 2000, you know, after 2008, when nationally peak to trough was about 30%. And you'll certainly, certainly see differences by, by market. Okay. Now, what that's going to mean for homeowners, you've talked with other folks on your podcast about this story, like if people lose jobs or if they lose wealth because of stock prices declining, there's going to be fewer people who want to buy homes or who can, are going to be in the market for buying homes. Down payment wealth is going to be, will have shrunk and obviously affordability with rates being, you know, close to, or I think they dip below 7% this week, I call it, you know, rates at 7%, just affordability is, is a big challenge. So People who would like to be homeowners will remain renters. And I, I think that what that's going to mean for real estate investors, I'll come back to that thread in a moment. If you have a strategy of buying, fixing, and renting, I think that's going to be, I think the next year to two years is going to be an excellent time to be in the market. So because you think it's going to be excellent because prices are going to adjust down and it'll be the first time we've yeah. had that in a long time. Pr- prices will adjust down. We're certainly seeing rents soften. But rents are coming off annualized depreciation close to over 10%. So when we talk about rent softening, they're not turning negative, they're approaching zero. And if you look historically, during periods of inflation, rents don't go negative on, on a, you know, on a real nominal basis. Rather, you know, rents correlate with the rate of inflation. 
So if you can buy a property at a lower cost basis because of prices cooling, they're being fewer buyers, and you can still get favorable rents, that's a great it's a good time over the long term. Exactly. Does so does that yeah, change? Sorry to interrupt it, but does that change that equation change? If we've shifted from the last decade of being a decade of super loose monetary policy, and now we're in a what if we're in a decade of significantly tighter monetary policy? Does that change some of those assumptions about that the cash flow there? Does that does that tamp like what if this, like mortgage rates are seven now, what if they stay, what if they go to eight? And what if they stay higher for the next decade? Does that, yeah. how does that change the whole flow? Well, it, it, it certainly changes the inputs to the, to the buy fix rent pro forma. So if you're, as a lender, we look at that service coverage ratio. And so clearly higher rents will have to be charged to, have positive cash flow after servicing debt with a higher interest rate. So in, in general, it changes the inputs to the to the rental pro forma. But if you can raise rents over time or and or if you can buy at a lower cost basis, that offsets the you know the higher debt interest cost. Okay. You know, the other thing that I'll add is we're and we're seeing this in our data. So we we get this real time when when people, you know, when people submit loans for financing. We're seeing real estate investors start to get creative around the type of rental model they employ. Oh, clearly, Air yeah. So clearly, Airbnb has been a craze over the last several years. We're not seeing Airbnb as a as an as a strategy as much now in the loan application data and in the underwriting. We're seeing things like one example, rent by the room. And you see businesses like Pad Split and Home Room coming out to, you know, build tech and facilitate the acquisition and management of those properties. When we look at the data, rent by the room can yield for the same property a cash flow that in some cases is two or two and a half X long term rent. Another example would be midterm rental strategies. So we see real estate investors looking at certain markets um, where you have retirees and traveling nurses, and they're buying homes near hospitals to cater to, to those professionals. And so you're seeing, you know, I, the, I, don't, I don't see these strategies becoming the dominant model. Long-term rent will always be the dominant form of occupancy. But they're certainly becoming more frequent. And again, what that's doing for the investor is it's allowing them to unlock additional economics. What it's doing for certain demographics that need affordable housing is it's increasing the supply, which is great. Yeah, I, I see that with with some of the rent by the room stuff. It's really fascinating. You know, one of the the solutions to a housing crisis is density. And yep. by, by renting by the room, like that creating density, I hadn't thought about things like the, the, the homes near the hospital as like, it's like a, an investment rental strategy. That's really fascinating. Really yep. cool. So, and so you're seeing that in the data, that's really neat. So you're seeing a shift in the business models of the, of what the, the investors are proposing. Yeah, we are now. Let me let me also just broaden my answer and and to just talk more more generally about some things that we expect to see play out. We do believe there are a number of real estate investors who are holding properties right now that they purchase in 2020, 2021, or early 2022, expecting to flip them at you know, high home price appreciation supported by low interest rates. We're also seeing an equivalent situation with home builders, all the way from your national large home builders down to local spec builders. Like, like for example, we think right now, over the next handful of months, there will be at least several hundred homes in the Tucson market that would, that are new construction that would look to sell at you know, peak prices, but they won't be able to. And so what does that mean? You're going to have these investors who are currently under stress. 
So they have properties that they counted on selling for profit. They will either sell at a loss or they'll convert to rentals. But some of these folks are like, like luxury home flippers is a great example. We just don't finance that, that segment. And the reason being, a lot of these home flippers, you know, okay, well, I, I buy a property, you know, it's very expensive. Really, my only outlet is to sell it or maybe Airbnb it in a great economy because it's on the beach in Santa Monica or whatever. But those, you know, those long-term rental strategies may not work out as well as people would expect because like occupancy rates are going to be lower, you know, like so you're renting at fewer nights because fewer people are traveling. They want to get on planes or whatever. So we, we think there's a lot of, we're seeing the data. There's a lot of real estate investors who are going to have to sell for a loss or, you know, they're going to consume liquidity. They have to, you know, kick the can down the road. And some of them eventually will either sell now or they'll become four sellers in the future, either on their own or through default. So that'll be an unfortunate circumstance. But again, you're going to have other investors sitting on the sidelines to pick up those homes at a discount and do something with them. So like, like new homes in Tucson and Phoenix, for example, that, you know, might sell at like a, you know, 15, 20% discount to peak value. I expect you'll have real estate investors coming in and saying, hey, I'll buy this for you because I can turn it into a rental and I can make a very attractive cap rate off that investment. Yeah. So let me ask you this. So we have this, uh, we have these sort of two constituents of, of investors, home, real estate investors that, that own these properties. Some of them are going to get squeezed on the economy, their, their business, the, the model of the house no longer makes sense. They're going to have to either sell or maybe rent, but the rent might not like it. So that, you know, in a, in the big downturn, that becomes added inventory that becomes investors who are, who are, you know, like exacerbating a downturn, right? Like that was certainly part of, of 2008 and especially in the hardest hits, the Vegas and, you know, like the, my friend, the high school teacher that had five homes in Vegas and walked away from five <laughs> mortgages at the same time. Right. And yep. And, and, but kept the BMW and, and, you know, like I, I, uh, and so, so that's, that, that's, there's a factor there coming And what, when I, what I try to get, I don't, I like, I try to get the sense of is there's also the factor of there's a bunch of people on the sidelines with a ton of cash who have been waiting for 17 years for the next real estate crash to deploy that cash. Um, mm -hmm. And and what's your sense of the balance there? It, it, it's hard to say quantitatively what what the balance is. What what I what I will say is the the distressed inventory that I described and, and you spoke to. I think it'll be a fraction of what we saw in in two thousand eight. Part of it is we we just haven't had the frenzy of people, you know, new investors buying you know, their first, second, or third property, like you saw with the subprime crisis and, you know, with subprime lending. So I, I would, I would say if, if it's, if it gets to be more than like, you know, this distressed inventory, if it gets to be more than like, let's call it like, you know, 10% or 15% of homes available for sale, maybe 20%, I, I'd be surprised. I think it's going to be well sub 10% just from, you know, the, the initial data. We're On the other side over here, there's a lot of capital wanting to come into the market. So you have large single family rental owners. So that, you know, the public folks like Invitation Homes, you know, the Amherst of the world who right now are, you know, sitting out the market relative to acquisition levels they were doing, you know, like earlier this year and in 2021, they can certainly come back in at the right price point. And I imagine they would, they're sitting on dry capital. And we also have this phenomenon of real estate investors who own rental portfolios. A lot of them did cash out refinances in 2020 and 2021 to take advantage of low rates. Yeah. Billions of dollars of cash out refinances were done. And, you know, that money is, is presumably investable. So yeah. you have, again, it's hard to quantify. I haven't attempted to do that, but. What I will say, we just did a big survey of real estate investors. We launched it about two weeks ago. And real estate investors generally think it's going to be a much better time to buy a, an investment property in a year. And we, we think the sentiment is there. And we think the capital is there for, you know, for real estate investors to come in 
and consume the stress properties that, that will hit the market. So that's interesting finding. So in your survey, you did a national survey recently. And in that survey, the investors are actually optimistic for opportunities that are coming their way. Is yes. That, yeah. That's fascinating because presumably because the, so many of that class are cash heavy, cash heavy post pandemic. Yeah, that, that's correct. And let, let me put this in context. Maybe I could just take 30 seconds and describe the survey just to give yeah, some context. Yeah, I'd love to hear it. That's, yes, let's talk about the survey. Sure. So if you want to read it, it's on our blog at vonup.com. So we will do this quarterly. We, we ran a survey of more than 1,000 real estate investors and a national, nationally representative sample of consumers. We wanted to ask the same questions of real estate investors and consumers to be able to compare their opinions about the economy, inflation, jobs, Neat. and the housing market. Yeah. Yes. We, yeah, yeah. We, we actually aren't aware of another survey like this that's publicly available. So the general findings are that a recession's imminent. Interestingly, a majority of consumers that we surveyed believe that we are already in a recession. Both groups believe that unemployment will be around 5.6 to 5.7% in a year, which would indicate recession level. And, and actually, when you, when you look at the distribution of the responses, like more than 10% of consumers think the unemployment rate is going to hit 10%, which would be like, that was great financial crisis level unemployment. Real estate investors are not as pessimistic about unemployment. Real estate investors think home prices will fall about 7% over the next year. Our own house view, the Vonup house view, is it'll be a little more severe than that nationally. Like I said, we think 10%. There's a distress scenario we could see going to 15 Consumers, interestingly, think home prices will rise about 8%. We, just from looking at the data, think that real estate investors are a more reliable gauge of future HPA. Yeah, that was right. So, so, so the investors thought, what was the, the appreciation on the investors? So they think the median view is that the prices will contract nationally about 7%. 7%, okay. Yeah. You think a little then, more than that, and consumers don't yeah, have any idea what they're talking about. <laughs> well, I, they have an idea. We just, we're not sure it's as reliable as real estate investors because they're not looking at you know, well, uh, those uh, same consumers think we're going to have 10% unemployment rate and 8% home price appreciation. Yeah. Something's not yeah. right in that in that expectation. Uh, probably both. Yeah. yeah, but but again, real estate investors generally think it'll be a much better time to buy a property in a year. And you know, when when we cut the data down, we we think that reflects an intention to really get back in the market when prices are favorable. And coincidentally, again, both real estate investors and consumers believe that rents will continue to appreciate. Real estate investors a little closer to zero than consumers, but both groups believe appreciation over the next year will be seen for rents. So that's a really interesting finding that the that the investors are generally pretty optimistic in terms of ability to to deploy their capital. That argues to me that that the that the investors are more likely to be a backstop to a downturn, like the arbitrage goes away very quickly, rather than exacerbate a downturn because they are distressed or afraid or out of cash. That sort of that's that's what it sounds like to me. Do you agree with that? I, I do. I, I I do. First of all, the the size of coming distressed inventory you know, from homeowners or from consumers will not be nearly as large as it was in 08. That's, that's our, our, our best current thinking. And, and exactly, there's a lot of, you know, from, you know, from institutional players down to wealthy individuals, there's a lot of capital to deploy. And I think then it just becomes a pricing story. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Are there other things in your survey that, that jumped out at you? That's a really neat finding. Yeah, the other the other thing that really struck us, which you know, I I think when we look at some of the the widely run monthly surveys like University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Survey, we asked real estate investors and consumers, is is inflation, what is the trajectory or momentum of inflation? Is it accelerating or decelerating? Both groups think it's accelerating, and both groups think it will be high, like seven-ish percent a year from now. So the the view of the people we surveyed is that inflation right now is not transitory. It's accelerating, 
and it is going to be sticky for a while. So that was, I was hopeful that we would capture the view that oh, inflation will be much better in a year. We didn't see that in our data. And related to that, both groups feel like it's hard to get a mortgage. So we asked consumers, you know, how difficult is it to get a mortgage for a property you'll occupy as an owner? We asked real estate investors the same question, but just swapped in how easy or hard is it to get an, a mortgage for an investment property. Both groups think it's hard now and it'll, it'll, it'll get more difficult. So that was, that was not a surprising observation, but it, 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 it does align with their view of inflation. And how um, does it align with your view? This, do you expect it to be harder to get a mortgage next year for either group? You know, my personal view, it, it's hard to say. So we, we've taken the approach internally, and this is very important to us when we manage our, 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 our capital partner relationships. We've taken the view of not saying there's, there's, there's one outcome for like what interest rates, liquidity, and availability of mortgage capital, mortgage debt will look like in a year, but we, we look at scenario. Okay, so we believe there's a scenario where the Fed is going to take the funds rate up to somewhere around five, maybe a little higher, and they're going to quickly react because the economy is, we're, we're going to see early next year, the consequences of sudden sequential 75 basis point rate hikes. So that would have you seeing a, a peak and then, you know, we see the Fed funds rate accelerating then we see them reversing course. The market obviously has described that as a Fed pivot and would like that to happen. That's not our base case, though. Our base case is that the Fed funds rate, we won't see 75 basis point hikes after what was announced this week, but we'll see hikes. And, and you'll see the Fed funds rate peak somewhere around 5 to 6%, depending on what the data show in the, you know, in particular in, in PCI, I'm sorry, in PC, you know, PCE. And so we, we think it'll, it'll, you know, it'll, it'll go up there and they'll hold it there for a while. And that's our base case. So that's like our 50% probability case. We think the, the Fed pivot is maybe 20 to 30%. And we think there's a, you know, call it a 20% likelihood case where the Fed has to take the funds rate much higher. And, you know, that can see it peaking somewhere around seven or eight. Now, it may not be a straight shot up. It might be, it goes up, it peaks for a while, maybe it goes down a little bit and then goes up or it just flattens and goes up some more. Uh, again, a lot of uncertainty. You know, we, we've had some, some decent data over the last couple of months on, you know, on, on, on the, the CPI and, you know, the core numbers stripping out inflation and stripping out food and energy, you know, flattening and coming down a little bit. But if you look at services, you know, inflation of services, that's, it's going up. You know, if, if the price of oil jumps all of a sudden, or if we have another systemic shock to the world economy, you know, who knows? Yeah. So, yeah, there really isn't any, I mean, is some disinflationary signal, maybe some of those, if you look at them, you know, with your con with my confirmation bias lenses on, but in a, in a world like that, where inflation continues next year does, and, and rates stay high or even go higher, mortgage rates go higher. Yeah. Does does that like what does that mean for you lending to your customers? Is it like does it get harder? Do you have to tighten it down? Do you have are you holding these or are you securitizing these mortgages at the end? So so we're we're a conduit. So we're we're not holding substantial portion of mortgages on on our balance sheet, but we're distributing out through partners and, and into securitization. You know, what we're counseling, you know, what we're counseling our bond partners and asking them to pass along to their customers is Assume that rates will be high and liquidity will be tight, and there will be a transitional period where you know we get back to you know rates and liquidity that really mimic we think like 1999 to, to 2001, 2002, 2003. There's some there's some parallels, or you can also look at you know rate trends, liquidity trends, and you know economic cycles in like the the 1990s. So we think the market is going to normalize around a higher cost of debt and. What we're counseling is plan for that, but also position yourself where if rates come down, you can take advantage. 
So for example, if somebody is taking out long-term debt on rental properties, typically those loans have a prepayment penalty. It's not that expensive to, you know, avoid or, you know, step down from like a three-year prepayment penalty to a one-year prepayment penalty. We're encouraging people to seriously consider that. So there's some tactical that you can do in your your financing terms to, to have flexibility. Yeah. All right. That's really fascinating. So, so let's, let's switch gears into longer term future. What let's talk about your vision of, you know, five, 10 years. What do we think about investment properties in the U S the state of lending? Like where does, where do things go in the next five to 10 years? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. So the big trends that I'm focusing on, first of all, are technology, both simplifying the mortgage, eliminating manual intermediary activities or reducing the cost of those intermediaries, and also upgrading the scope and precision of underwriting and risk management. And I'll give you an example that we deal with today. You had mentioned securitization. Whenever an investment mortgage lender or an aggregator of those loans, like a, like a bank or a hedge fund wants to do a securitization, they will hire a third-party firm like Site AMC as an example to perform manual due diligence. And that due diligence involves taking an Excel file, typically, of all of the you know loan data, where somebody can compare it to the loan documents for consistency and accuracy. It involves a human, you know, manually reperforming a partial or full scope of the underwriting done by the lender. It may involve getting a drive-by or exterior broker's price opinion or desktop review of, of the value of the property to confirm the appraisal. That's typically done on 50 to 100% of loans at a cost of like 350 to $450 or $500 per loan. Imagine you're a homeowner or a real estate investor. We'll focus on real estate investors, and that's a $400,000 loan. I've, I've just tied up 0.1%. That's cost that ultimately has to go to the borrower. Everything I just described, technology can do. Like if you want the if you want the human involvement, great. Do it on a sampling basis, which the GSEs do this, but they're not sampling fifty percent of the loans they buy. They're sampling a much much smaller size. That's, that's one example. So I, I think tech will simplify the mortgage. And do you think that'll so that will then pass on costs, maybe pass on efficiencies? Uh, certainly, the efficiencies that you're working on the the frictionless environment to yeah. the the end envi- the end consumer, the it, investor. It will either allow lenders to make more money, capital providers to realize higher yield, or borrowers to realize savings. I personally believe a lot of that will flow to the to the borrower. Real estate investors are small businesses. They're entrepreneurs. They're very savvy. They know the right questions to ask. They know how to negotiate. So I, I think you'll ultimately see not all, but some of those economic go to a, to a ultimately a cheaper cost of debt for real estate investors, which we're very supportive of. Yeah. The, the second innovation that you know, I'm really interested in is home ownership and home occupancy. So one example, we work with some prop techs who are doing fractional ownership of investment properties. We work with, you know, we're, we're working with another one who is doing a model where it's um, rent to own, but they're doing it at scale. And Going back to what we talked about earlier, younger households, millennials, you know, Gen Zs, et cetera, having less money for down payment, you know, homes being, you know, expensive relative to like, you know, what, what they would have cost 10, 20, 30 years ago. Models that facilitate home ownership, home occupancy in ways that we haven't seen before, the midterm rental play, things like that. I, I think that's going to be not beneficial, especially on the affordable housing front. So really interested to see how those how those model, models evolve over time. And very excited about you know, VC interest and those innovations and things like that. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in the housing affordability challenges this country has and, and the innovations that we can go to make that. In some ways, an innovation like Airbnb is, is, is creating more ADUs in the world where we can have more density and more and more livability though. And in some ways, Airbnb is is increasing the the revenue, the rent revenue on houses. And therefore there's more of them that are investment properties and fewer of them that are resale. And and that's taking away inventory, oh. you know, availability. So but but so I'm I'm definitely I'm with you on that. I like I'm interested in seeing can we yeah. solve that and and you know the it- the yeah, go ahead. yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, no, I was going to say it, it definitely cuts both. So, fundamentally, real estate investors are entrepreneurial commercial risk takers, and so if an Airbnb is their best execution, they'll gravitate in that in that direction. But given the number of people who both want to own investment real estate and have the capital to do so, and really want to diversify away from, you know, the 60-40 rule of, you know, 60% of your money to bond, to stocks, 40% to bonds, given bond market volatility, stock market volatility. I, I think there's just a huge amount of untapped demand, people who want to participate in investment real estate, but can't do it because the infrastructure is not there. So when we think about like more dense housing, that, you know, those barriers are, local zoning regulations, you know, the whole NIMBY phenomenon that we need to solve. On the financing side, what we're working on, it's, you know, it's it's really unlocking liquidity by standardizing products. And the other thing, you know, this goes back to a third innovation that I'm, I'm really interested in is, are we finally getting to a place where we're going to, re- you know, we're going to uh, reduce or eliminate antiquated methods of construction? It amazes me that we still primarily do stick-built construction of homes today. It's like we're building homes today at scale the same way we did 100, 225, or 150 years ago. Yeah. Like, it, it's, it's incredible to me. And when you think about the ability to innovate in the use of recycled materials, reduce carbon footprint, carbon output, reduce you know, you know, negative output into the environment, the ability to reduce cost by, you know, doing things in the factory, getting economies of learning, economies of scale. That's another area that, you know, I feel like modular and panelized construction, you know, factory construction of homes has had its fits and starts, but I, I, I think we're at an inflection point there. And, you know, we'll, we'll see, you know, obviously we've had, a, we've had a couple of big corporate failures in that space, but but in spite of that, I, I think that that's a third area where I'm really interested in seeing how it plays out. Because again, Mike, it goes to your point about people want to live in cities. People don't want to live 50 miles from where they work, even if they're only going to the office two days a week. And a lot of new construction increasingly will focus on established urban and suburban neighborhoods. And if we can make that more efficient, if we can get the permitting process to be more efficient, if we can get zoning regulations to get those projects to happen faster, and you know, essentially the soft cost of construction to be less, that's really how you break down barriers and you get more affordable housing. And that's it's great. it might it, it might be apartments, but I think increasingly, like you said, it's going to be maybe not a four hundred square foot ADU, maybe it's a twelve hundred square foot like. Yep. large ADU or second home in the backyard, but it's, I, I think there's a lot of things that you can do by looking at backyards and, you know, yeah. tear downs and rebuilds. And I'm, I'm really excited about how those things will converge over the next 10 years. That's great. I love that. I love the view of the, the technology, the construction technology that it does feel to me like we're on the cusp. There's some really great, there's some really great 3d printed stuff happening. There's, there's, there's a lot of neat things going on in that space. So that's super, that's super. I love thinking about the future that way. Here's a question I have about the future for you in, in with investors. We, we know that almost all the, the investment in this country is by individuals with like one to four units or a handful of units. We've had, of course, the headlines talk about Wall Street buying homes, and and the the big money, the big Wall Street money has grown market share, especially in, in a lot of you know the the handful of those 
the same cities that everybody's interested in. They've grown a lot of market share there, but oh, you know, overall, maybe four or five percent or six percent of the whole investor pool is Wall Street money. Where does that go in the future? Do the mom and pop investors get squeezed out? Do 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 the does Wall Street like does it peak at this space? What what happens? What's your view there? Does it consolidate and like you know and and get real estate investment? grow into the hands of really only a few players? So I would expect the large institutional ownership of one to four units, single family homes, their market share to increase. But even if their market share doubles, small investors still are the vast majority you know, you know, as owners, they're the vast majority of the market. Yeah. And so I, I, I don't see small investors getting squeezed out. The other thing too is like large single family REITs work well when they can buy homogenous assets concentrated in certain areas. Like, even though they're scattered sites, there's still an efficiency of managing a more homogenous set of assets equivalent to managing apartments. And that's why you've seen the operating efficiency ratios of the SFR REITs improve over time. But when you think about innovative rental models, when you think about redevelopment of properties, like adding value to properties to get a higher yield, Scale is not your friend. Small is your friend. Like the unit economic, the success for is going to really be with the small guys, like the DIY landlord versus invitation homes coming in and saying, hey, I'm going to do 50 homes here. That's interesting. So I, so I think that there are some, I think there are a lot of factors in the favor of small investors knowing their markets, having relationships with the best general contractors and subcontractors, understanding the consumer dynamic. Like, I think it would be very hard, even with the best data for a large SFR player to say, oh, this is where I'm going to go to a mid-rental strategy. I'm going to do on 30 homes for traveling nurses. Like in a neighborhood, it's going to be three homes, not 30. And like, you know, you can't tell with data, which is the best block, like where do people want to live? You can tell it in an area, but there's a certain granularity where you really need that local knowledge. And I can't see computers and data and software completely replacing local knowledge. What I see it doing is enhancing the insights that real estate investors can get when they make decisions. Similar to like enhancing our decision-making as a lender. So I think there's a lot of things, even as, even as the world becomes more digital, I think with real estate, it's a local model. And I, I, think, I think that small real estate investors, the folks that Vonage serves are gonna be in prime or pole position to take advantage. And really, again, what we need to do is we need to unlock liquidity for them. The main advantage that a large, like public REIT will have over a small real estate investor is cost of debt or cost of equity. Right. And that's interesting. So in a world where in the, in the past 10 years, equity has been so cheap, everybody's had cheap equity in yeah. the next 10 years, that may be, it may be significantly different for smaller folks, huh? Yeah. It may be more expensive for them. Or if we can prove the business case that, they're a great credit and we can use technology to disintermediate like all those manual activities that I made mention of. We can, we can hopefully either not see that differential rise or we can, if it, you know, to the extent it has risen, we can, we can, we can bring it back in. Ah, amazing. I love that. That's a really great optimistic way to end the conversation. I appreciate that. I appreciate those insights very much. We're, we're at the, we're at our hour. Let me, so you mentioned the blog. So on vontiv.com, you've got, you publish on the blog, you publish the latest survey. If people want to see the, the results of the survey, they can go there. Other places that people can find you or, or you want to direct them to, to, to know more about the company and your, or you, your work. 
Sure. Dot-com describes our, if you're a real estate investor and you're interested in obtaining a loan, I'll, I'll give you some, I'll point you to a few places. So if you're sourcing real estate, rebuilt.com, uh, great business, one of our partners. Awesome. If you're looking, if you're looking for a Southeast or well, frankly, even a national lender, there's a guy named Ken Corsini, who's on HGTV's Flip or Flop Atlanta. Ken is, one of, Ken is one of our lender partners. Go search for him and Red Capital Lending. Um, we're his infrastructure. So two, two things there. There's a third group, Certain Lending. That was actually a company we started. We set up our own direct lender when we founded the company to build our technology. We thought we'd throw the brand away, but it, it's actually a great business for us. So we kept it around. So you can go to CertainLending.com if you're a real estate investor. Okay. Yeah, we have about 40 partners. So if, if you if you want to connect and understand who some of these partners are and more about our business, you can also find me on LinkedIn, Charles McKinney. And I'm always excited to connect with you know with people in the real estate community. Amazing. Charles, it's been a really, really great hour. I appreciate your time and your expertise, the unique vision that you brought. So, but let's wrap it up there. And so everybody, this has been the Top of Mind podcast. And if you need the, your real estate data, you know where to get it, altosresearch.com. Go there, book a, a free consult with our team, talk about the data. Go find Charles and Vontiv and the lenders, especially if you're an investor. It really, it's, it's exciting. The, the technology innovations are really, uh, really terrific to me. I, I love watching that part of the, the cycle for us. And it's going to be quite a 2023 in front of us to see what happens. Lots of, lots of things to keep watching. So, all right, everybody. Thanks so much. Thanks, Charles. Thanks, Mike. You do a great service. I appreciate the opportunity to be on your blog. I'm sorry, on your podcast. Thanks for listening to Top of Mind. See you again next time and be sure to click subscribe to get future episodes.